Second episode of Pounding the Table featuring Avi Mash and Anthony Ohion. Anthony, what's going on, man? Fourth of what's, July weekend. What's going on, buddy? <laughs> it was such a good weekend. I'm just happy to be spending some time with the family and the girlfriend. It was just a great R&R from the markets, even though I can't wait at all to be back tomorrow. I'm ready to pound the table more pound likely. Pound the table, of course, man. We are fully back here with the episode two. You guys hopefully love the new intro. We're still playing around, so... Happy 4th of July, everyone. We are super happy to be back and could be more excited too. Anthony, I know you're probably being humble about this, but you just had your one year anniversary of, of the full year of the fun. <laughs> yeah, so it was phenomenal. <laughs> crazy for me. It was, it was a heck of a year, honestly. A lot of up and downs and managing money at 22 outside capital is not something I thought I'd be doing so early on, but we definitely talked about this a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really happy with the results. I did 122% return, which should translate to about 102% or so net return for my investors after fees, commissions, and expenses and all that. But I, I could not have planned for it to go better. Honestly, my goal was 25%. I think I took a really good opportunity with uh, the huge crash that happened because a lot of my gains came from the last three months. So mm-hmm. I kind of turned that big negative into a pretty big positive, which I'm really, really happy about. We'll be touching on this a bit later here in the podcast. I'm, I, as an investor with you, I uh, am super excited. I, I think it was so funny <laughs> looking back. Of course, we, we did that whole thing of the chats of back in 2017. I was asking you all sorts of questions and Sure enough, here we are. We talked about, hey, you know, eventually I want to start a fund. And two years later, three years later, we're rocking and rolling. So congrats to you, man. This is super exciting. Love being a part of it. Happy to be along for the ride. Um, Shout out to James Gross, shared a Bridgewater Capital tweet saying that Ray Dalio is down 20%, right? Mm -hmm. Simmons of Renaissance is down as well, you mentioned. So like the the karate kid almost, (laughs) where the mentor, you know, becomes the mentee. Uh, those yeah. those were my idols. Like the, when I was the whole time I was trading growing up, I wanted to be like half Dalio, half Simmons, because he's the AI genius computer modeling guy. Everything for the last 10, 20 years, he's been the best return investor in his uh, Magellan fund. He's just been absolutely killing it. And Ray Dalio, I mean, he's the principal's legend. guy, you know, just a legend, the biggest asset manager around. But I mean, even the greats have tough times. Um, not to say that one day it won't happen to me, because I'm sure it might happen to me one day too. Um, mm-hmm. But just to see that you know everyone's human gives you a lot of motivation to know that in the future, you, you could do as much as you possibly want to do in this world. You touched on the AI and computer trading, right? Everyone's always talking about the algos. You mm-hmm. obviously bring a human touch. You don't have algos, right? And so you mentioned there is a human element to this uh, beyond just these algos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's just shocking to me because the whole reason why I've looked up to Renaissance for so many years is because they are just a, a genuine black box, right? They just put a bunch of inputs, a bunch of formulas and historical data for all the possible years that they can uh, with their own tweaks, of course. And I just thought Renaissance was just operating non-human touch in the slightest. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, they have to constantly change the inputs and adjust them and this and that. And that's what the computer scientists at their firm do. I mean, they they they, they literally hire, and so did Dalio, they hire astrologists. They hire just the most random things to factor into everything that you would not assume factors into trading, but apparently it does for them. But it was just shocking to me to see that the artificial intelligence and like the algorithms that they're running weren't able to outperform the market. In fact, they, they got crushed during the market and, uh, and so much volatility and so much movement. Like I, I would really think that they would have done so much better. I mean, Dalio is different. Dalio has a much different strategy. And even his all weather fund, which was supposed to be great in all times of you know, in all weather and all times of the market, that got crushed too because it's such a huge left tail events. You know, every We talked about this last time too. Every correlation in the market just kind of went to one. Everything was selling off besides, I guess, gold. And so he had a rough time with that as well. Mm-hmm. And we, we were talking about the other day, I was joking. I was like, wait, if I was a celebrity, could I put a, an image of Trump saying China 
and the algos potentially could pick up on that. You're saying that they could actually yeah. read yeah. into to images. It's, it's insane. Yeah, they do they do image processing, NLP, like non-language processing. So they look at everything. And it's kind of crazy. Like I was one day I was on Twitter and I saw Musk post this just absurd tweet about the model W. And I'm also once again doing quotes on my fingers. The model W uh, is just a watch. He just took a photo of a watch with a tower through it, and the algo spiked Tesla like 10% in a couple minutes. I mean, there's there's no model W. Yeah. You know, he's not. He might put out a watch. He loves putting out just random things. He was killing it with the short shorts at $69 and 420 cents. <laughs> the flamethrowers and such. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could just market anything at this point with the Tesla brand. It's just pretty crazy. Algos pick up on almost everything. And even this last week, you could see like anytime the data would hit on any state mm -hmm. with their coronavirus cases or wh whatever it was, like the algos would respond instantaneously. And a lot of the times they read it wrong and you see the market just get bought back up in a few seconds or they'll spike it first and then they'll drop it after. So I think a lot of the time those algorithms are either really wrong, which I think mm -hmm. some of them are. And I think the other half of them do that you give this illusion of people trying to go in one direction or the other and they try to capitalize on people's directional trading in that time because they, they trade way faster right like i can't right. in, i can't get in and out of all my positions in 10 seconds but they can so yeah, I, was, I was talking uh with some friends elon musk was talking about 69 days since 420 or whatever yeah. he was saying and I, i've just noticed this trend whenever he starts to talk a little bit cocky yeah, he knows. He's flying, dude. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just have seen this, you know, over and his, over again. His tweet recently, like the SEC three letters, the middle word is Elon's. And right. like, that's just such a, the most provocative SEC taunt of all time. But like, what are you going to do to the guy? But you're going to, you're going to take off his huge salary bonus that he gave and everyone approved of all the shareholders voted for it and said, it's okay. And now that he's making the company over a $200 billion company, they want to get upset about it because he's killing it and making huge strides. I think that's absurd, but yeah, I digress. It, <laughs> no worries. We got a lot to talk about here on this episode. From an agenda standpoint, we're talking about last week. Of course, you had a killer last week, our first episode mm -hmm. ever. We did one cut just raw for the first time, which was phenomenal. <laughs> but as we promised, we want to really start to rock it this week. So today we'll talk about a little bit of last week's episode. Of course, we got to talk about Corona. We have uh, some strong statements to say there. You, we mentioned Tesla. Can't say Tesla without Nikola going on. So we'll, we'll talk about Nikola, a few other SPACs that are happening as well. We have a what if uh, new feature kind of to the podcast now. Some hot takes that potentially could happen uh, here down the line. And then, of course, we have some questions from the audience that, that we'll pull in each week. So we'll have Tony walk through some of those as well. So, you know, we'll jump right into it here on the last episode. Absolutely fucking nailed it with SPG, uh, Simon <laughs> Property Group again. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Obviously, yeah, the yeah, shares yeah. rose significantly. We had a nice little discussion about that last week, and I know you weren't a too too big of a fan on it. And I'm not a huge fan of it long term unless they figure out a way to spruce up their business model. But I, th I think it's good enough for now that it's undervalued. And I think if they figure out a way to make retail mall spaces across the country more enticing for people to go shop at you know maybe not having a bunch of gap stores in there mm. or I, I don't know what they're gonna well, do Kanye, regard too. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah you never know you never know but yeah i mean they opened eighteen thousand stores across the u.s and that's in their portfolio um, and they are the, i think the largest mall owner in america also they announced a dollar 30 cent dividend which i think the reason they rocketed off of that that's still a decrease from their previous dividend a pretty significant decrease so it's like 30, 40% decrease. I don't know exactly because you don't need to know every little detail to make money in the markets. Um, but people, I think people just thought it was going to be zero. I think that people thought that this stock has gone down so much and that all the malls were so closed and that no tenants were paying rent and that the company had not enough cash on hand because they have 25 billion in debt or whatever it is. Mm. People just thought that they weren't going to be able to pay any dividends. And that's why a ton of those big funds hold SPG. You know, a lot of you know, larger conglomerate REITs hold SPG. A lot of big funds hold SPG is like a staple real estate play mm -hmm. uh, in, in commercial real estate. So I think that the second they slash dividends to zero, then the companies, a lot of funds will not hold that because a lot of them do for the dividend, which is still honestly a pretty great yield as it is um, considering everything that's going on too. So that's gone really well. I rose 10% one day and then 6% after hours. So it was about you know, 16, 17% gain at high last week which we did really well. I think I'm going to still hold on to it. I've got shares. I've got January, 2022. I put a lot of time on it because I just don't know how long it's going to take for people to realize the actual data, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about later. You mentioned even last week, this is not a, necessarily a 10 year hold. 
You'll watch it, you'll trade with it and and see, you know, what's going on, right? Another one is is UAL, right? So United Airlines hasn't Mm -hmm. popped quite yet. It hasn't gone yet, but one thing I did see was the uh, Treasury announced loan agreements with the five major airlines. Okay, so even if they do go bankrupt, it's not going to be a big deal because the airlines went bankrupt in the 90s and look where they are now. UAL was trading pennies on the dollar and, and everything else was. I think that that's going to be fine regardless. You know, I don't really see that airlines are going to go out of business until Elon invents teleportation. Um, so right. <laughs> I think that that's going to be like, a, I mean, I don't love that long term either. Like I would never, ever, ever in my whole life buy airlines or hotel trusts or, or mall trusts and own them in my fund ever. Only yeah. because they're down so much. Like in six months, I think they're not going to be even close to this low. So that's, that's why I'm holding them. I mean, you're, you're allowed, right? As a trader, everyone, that's the whole beauty of trading, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of these funds, as we talked about last week, have been reallocating a lot of this money, right? So, yeah. and you nailed that too. We saw a quick dip. And then, as you mentioned, money is still sitting out of there on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Have we seen that? We saw, you know, another pop here at the end of the week. People are riding yeah. high the 4th of July. Is this sustainable? Is it, what do you think? Yeah. Happen? So the biggest thing is that if you look at the last quarter, quarters before that, so at the end of the month, there's such huge, and we were talking about this last time, there's such huge changes in values of stocks, you know, all these funds have to rebalance. Um, and some people just want to get things off their book, or some people want to get certain things on their book, uh, because they have to show their investors what they're holding and why they're holding it. So I mean, if you're holding booking or UAL, and it's down 60% from its highs, you're going to look pretty stupid. But then if you buy it next quarter at the low, and then it appreciates over that next quarter, you're going to look really, really smart. So and I'll drop a little secret here about how I like to look Ooh, at the market to know yeah, <laughs> uh, to know what kind of what kind of selling it is. I think a lot of people get really scared. They don't really understand. There's a lot of different kinds of selling between all the indices. So when the Nasdaq, the Dow, and the RUT all decrease in the same exact percent, which is what happened a lot of the time the last few weeks when the mm. quarter selling was happening, because people were just taking stuff off their books. In a normal market, the S&P and the NASDAQ don't run together. They run close, but not together. And especially the RUT does not run with the S&P. The the Russell 2000 will outperform when the market rallies and underperform when the market drops. So that's a huge indicator right there. So when you see similar selling between all three indices, that is the definition of controlled selling. So it's not necessarily a bearish market at all. That's just reallocation happening. We got the election coming up. I think that's kind of a... Quick time here to jump into Mr. Kanye West. He's just <laughs> made an announcement. He's going to be running. Uh, so we're jumping a bit ahead here, but obviously jumping in here late in the game, running for president. Any thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Is this yeah, real? I mean, I, this- I, 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 the thing is with Kanye West jumping in and with Joe Jorgensen getting enough to be on the debate stage and like on the tickets uh, to be able to be voted for, I think that the biggest thing here is I, I do think Kanye does actually think he's going to run. I don't know if he's actually going to go all the way through, but I believe that in his head he does. And I think that's enough for people. Kanye is clearly a, a Trump supporter and Jorgensen is way closer to Biden than the other two candidates, right? So I think what's going to happen is Joe Jorgensen is going to take a good amount of votes, not too substantial, away from mm-hmm. Biden and then some from uh, Trump. So it's basically like throwing two wrenches in the mix and you just need to know which wrench is bigger, right? So Biden technically has a, a lead in the polls, but as we saw with the 99 point whatever percent accuracy that Hillary was going to win last election, we know the polls are crap. So I have no idea what's going to happen here, but I, I do think that there's like a 10% chance he goes all the way through and actually not to win it, but to run and genuinely try to run Kanye. Yeah. And there's like, I think five or six states that he's already too late in the game. I guess he could come in as a write-in. I don't know the exact details to be fair here, but yeah, I, I was just saying right away when I saw that, I was like, Ooh, this might actually open the gate up for Trump again. And that's my personal opinion. So I, I won't say that's Tony's opinion here, but uh, I, I do think a lot of young voters may want third party. I know I mm-hmm. personally kind of wanted a, th- a third option here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so seeing someone like Kanye come in, who's got a big voice, obviously mm-hmm. kind of question like, is he colluding with Trump, right? He, he, yeah. he talks with Trump. We know the Kardashians are huge Trump supporters as well. And so like, is this a secret play? Who knows? Like yeah. it, it potentially take 
Yeah. Boats away from and that, that. And that and that's the cool what if. And I know you just could not wait to talk about. Community. I had to jump in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sorry. You, you said it three times before we even got to the like yeah, last finish the last moment. episode. I know. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a great top conversation. My gut feeling would say that he's not going to try to get on stage, but that's just me, you know. Yeah, I'd agree. I think I think it's more of just like a play, and who knows? It could be just a a major play for his new CD that's coming out. So we won't <laughs> yeah. spend much more time there. Obviously have to just talk about it for two seconds because that's yeah. hilarious. He, could, he couldn't wait. Out. He couldn't wait. So of yeah. course. All right, back to the agenda. <laughs> back to the agenda. So we were talking about Robin Hood traders real quick, and then we'll jump into the real show. You had a great uh, quote you found or an article you found here mm-hmm. on Robin Hood we wanted to share. Yeah, so we were talking about Robin Hood traders last week as they are essentially like a $30 billion plus hedge fund that just moves with, all news and sentiment and in a way that we just like haven't seen before. But I was reading this article that got reposted from the 1980s from The Spectator. Um, here's a quote. It said that the crowd of small investors and small speculators who have been purchasing and operating on change during the recent crisis was unprecedentedly large. So large are their checks distinctly and heavily increased the demand upon the country banks. And dot, dot, dot. But after the great fall in prices, crowds of small capitalists hastened to buy stocks unexpectedly cheapened for investment and so helped on the upward turn in everything except South American bonds. So I think that that basically says that this retail buying that people are saying is like irrelevant, which even though it's a smaller amount of money, it definitely drives sentiment. You can't really put a price or a quantity on how much money is driven by sentiment. Because if you think about it, sure, okay, maybe Robinhood is only like 30 billion or so of people's money. But mm-hmm. then every algorithm is definitely factoring in Robin Tracker. Every algorithm is factoring in all people's sentiments, right? So if you have all these people with $1,000, $2,000 accounts, you've got so much more data that will skew all the big funds, algos, and their thoughts just on, on sentiment perception from a human standpoint too. Um, so it's really interesting thinking about how Robinhood is like this big hedge fund that's just kind of moving the markets and like a multiplier effect that no one really sees exactly how. Totally. We spoke about last week. We talked high level on what a SPAC is, right? Uh, Special purpose acquisition company. We talked about Tesla. And then of course, you can't talk about Tesla without talking about Nikola. Uh, But there's a few others like Space, DraftKings, I made a ton of money on and (laughs) sports haven't even started. So in my mind, Mm -hmm. I think that's going to continue to grow. Uh, A few others, IPOC, IPOB, Yep. Talk about those, those, about a few of those, and then I have another question here at the end. So this guy, Chamath, I'm going to butcher his last name, but I'm going to go for it. Pelopatia. <laughs> I like him as a person, which is like rare for me to say that I enjoy someone as a person in the big investment world. But he's a great social activist, and he is the guy who led the space Virgin Galactic SPAC, and that did super well. I, I rode that from 12 to 41, um, and he's got these new two special purpose acquisition companies ipoc and ibob and i'm going to start accumulating those Um, but the only thing to say about that is most SPACs only have two-year limit before they can make a deal Mm -hmm. so if they don't make a deal in those two years just to backtrack a little bit and explain what a SPAC is if we didn't do that last time so basically just think about a blank check company right so whoever organizes the SPAC, they get an underwriter to basically create a blank check company you know credit suisse or whoever it is and they put in X billions of dollars and then issue stock at $10 a share. And then when they find a company that they are interested in, they will take that money and do a merger. And then that stock basically becomes that private company, like we saw with Virgin Galactic and uh, Nikola, which used to be mm-hmm. VTIC. So I think that those two, even though they've been recently listed, they haven't been for a while, I think that once those start merging with other companies, they're going to have a great run. It, it, it just reminds me of what space was. And I think that now that he's got more experience with the SPAC industry, I think that he's going to kill these next two. Yeah. What is a regular SPAC versus having a warrant? Yeah. So all the SPACs, I think all of them do, if not most of them do, have warrants attached to them. So a warrant is basically like an option, but like a long-term option. And instead of for a hundred shares, it's for one share. And I think all the SPACs I've seen have warrants listed at uh, $11.50 because the the price of the offering for SPACs is $10 per share you know, divided by X number of shares based on the value of the blank check company at inception. Right. So let's say for IPOC or whatever, I think the warrants are like three bucks now and they're at $11.50. And most of these warrants are anywhere between two, four, seven years out which means that in that amount of time, you'll be able to buy one share of IPOC or IBOB at 1150 
if you pay $3, right? So you're giving $3 instead of the 10 or 11, whatever the stock's at. In that number of years, that $3 would turn into, let's say it goes to 50. That $3 is going to be $48.50 instead of the $11 or $10 you put in going to 50, mm-hmm. right? So you make a 15 times return instead of a five times return. But if the company doesn't buy anything and then it gets liquidated, then you lose that, obviously. But you'd lose the, the, you wouldn't lose the stock, you get cash refunded. But I think warrants are a really interesting way to play these SPACs. The only problem mm-hmm. is that they do slightly decay over time with options if no deal is made and the stock doesn't move or if the stock does go down. But SPACs are so different because they have that underlying the value of $10 a share until they make an acquisition. Um, so that's basically what a warrant is. And I actually started accumulating IPOC and IBOB warrants. Really small, though. I've been spending more money on other SPACs that have uh, IPO'd a while ago. Mm-hmm. because it takes an average of like 12 months or 18 months is what I read is the average amount of time for a SPAC to make an acquisition. Yeah. So if you have so, patience, those are good ones. I guess that kind of leans into that other question of, you know, how do you decide warrant versus regular SPAC, right? Like, yeah, regular, how are you deciding? Share which of, way, yeah, which the, regular, the, the regular share of a SPAC. I mean, it just depends on like what you want your your risk to be, right? So those warrants can easily go to zero more easily than the SPAC itself can go to zero because you know, if it does get liquidated, you're going to get your $10 back. If they do a merger and it goes bad, then I mean, that's when you'd lose more money on the SPAC than on the warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it just depends on what kind of risk you want to take, right? So like, I've been slightly accumulating more warrants than the SPACs themselves because I'm looking for a higher gain, right? Because like I, I saw what happened with the Nikola warrants, even though there's a huge, crazy arbitration, but same with space. Like I saw some of those warrants, they, they went from like a dollar to $30. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things like that, that makes me want to buy warrants over it. Because I mean, I think this is like kind of one of those ICO initial coin offering, right? Ones, right. When like random coins, like, you know, Avi coin comes out and all it is, one, is, by the way, guys, yeah, <laughs> load up, it's going to a thousand. Yeah. But when, when the, when the, when the random Avi coin comes out, you don't even have to have a, a company behind it. It's all going to be hyped. And SPACs are now finally getting into that mainstream spotlight, which is when those ICOs really took off. So I think there's like a really interesting opportunity in the next six to 12 months for a lot of these SPACs. It's, it's definitely an interesting topic to discuss. Uh, we'll be monitoring those throughout the, the following podcast episodes. Jumping back into the agenda of what we want to discuss, obviously 4th of July, I was rocking. I was outside. I saw tons of people when I was at the beach. I did keep my distance, of course, and, and trying to be as smart as possible. But People are out there doing beer bongs, belly shot, butt luges. You know, you saw everything A to Z, right? You know, which brings us to the conversation, right, around Corona. And it's not just Corona. We were joking before the podcast, the bubonic plague coming back, having a kind of a nervous laughter to it, right? The swine flu, (laughs) bringing amoeba. I I can't even pronounce that word. There's a possibility of bubonic plague outbreak in China now, and there's this swine flu, which the Chinese government said, we don't think it's going to be able to transmit to humans. Well, you've said that before with COVID mm-hmm. and the brain eating amoebas, <laughs> the killer hornets. I, I just like, it's like an attack of the nature that's happening. I mean, I would say I'd, I'd take the safer side and just assume to be more cautious in general because of that. This is why we crashed 40% of the markets February and March is because of COVID-19. And you can't really talk about the market today without factoring in this. I mean, this is like every single day, pieces of data come out that move the markets every single night. You know, there's vaccine news or a raise or a decrease in the cases or the death rates or whatever it is. I'd say this is the single most impactful piece of data. And the only thing that really combats it is like the Fed data that comes out. Right. And the Fed stimuluses that come out. So, yeah. And, and Corona is obviously a touchy subject, right? You have your parents, you mentioned your mom's an, an essential airline worker. I myself, I have asthma. And so it's obviously a touchy subject. I've have many friends that have gotten it themselves. I live in New York, so I've seen it firsthand, of course. And so by no means are we about to share some data to you know belittle any of that. I know we mentioned that last week. We're talking about stocks. We're talking about how people are interpreting this news. We do have some data that, that we're going to share. And, and you know, please... Mm-hmm. Think about this, you know, as purely data, yeah, which is kind of how we take a look at it, of course. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a completely objective standpoint. You know, I've had friends who've lost loved ones from this. It's absolutely no joke. And, and I'm the first person to wear a mask when I go outside. Whether or not you agree with that, I, I don't care. But I definitely take precautions. Wear a mask, by the way, yeah, guys. Yeah, we, we, yeah wear, wear a mask. You know, my dad, my dad's 78, right? And my mom's 56. So it's not it's not about me wearing a mask. Like, I don't care personally right. for myself because I'm not sure, but I, I have a ridiculously low chance of getting actually sick based on the data. 
you know, but if I go out with all my friends on the 4th of July to the sandbar, which I didn't do because of this very reason, and I come home and I bring it to my parents, I'm going to feel like a really bad son if anything goes wrong. So here's the data that I got some bullet points here. I wanted to go over some of the, the key data. And I know everyone's thinking that the cases are getting worse and everything looks worse and worse, but I think this will actually put you at ease a little bit. Um, so Reuters said this week, U.S. weekly hospitalizations for COVID-19 overall are down 68% week over week, ending June 30th. Okay, interesting. Texas virus cases rose last week 2.9% below the seven-day average of 4.2%. And the same thing happened uh, with Arizona and Florida. Also, the CDC said nearly one in 10 Americans have already had the coronavirus and survival rate is 99.5%. That's a huge story. I mean, people were thinking 5%. It's going to be way more, but it's just because we weren't testing. We weren't taking into account the real data as much. 43% of the deaths because of coronavirus, which are also just very hard to determine the real data there because it's people die with COVID, people die of COVID. Those are huge differences in prepositions there that are not really accounted for in the data properly. But 43% of those are from nursing homes. And adults 85 or older in the U.S. only make up 1.8% of the population and 33% of all coronavirus deaths in the U.S. Right. So, I mean, ju- just looking at those alone, you can see that this is obviously you know, serious for certain people. I mean, it's serious for everyone because anyone can infect people who are more at risk, right? My dad has a couple of pre-existing conditions. I think it's a big deal to make sure that people who you love who are older take care of themselves and are safe. Um, but when you look at the data, you see that I think that the media is really taking this out of hand. Um, well, totally. And you, you kind of take a look at every other day, they're changing how they're interpreting mm-hmm. what counts as a new case, right? So you brought up this uh, article about how Dallas calculations, there's like 15 ways now to count someone that's probable off of one case, right? And so we're seeing this over and over again, how mm-hmm. every other week they're saying, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. We're seeing in a sense where the media is really controlling our minds. And so that's, again, where we're trying to present some of this data to calm your nerves a bit. Um, again, of course, wear a mask, be smart. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your loved ones. I, I try to be as impartial as possible. And I just really look at data. And I will never look at data from somebody who doesn't just post numbers, like their own thoughts on it. And I think it's wrong to do that. You should really like do the research and the data for yourself and then interpret it yourself. And then here's just the last piece of data. U.S. COVID-19 cases versus deaths upturn beginning in early June. This was a graph that I was looking at as well. Uh, and the CDC estimates the mean time from symptom onset to death is about 14 days. I mean, there's been no curve inflection yet on deaths. There's been no increase there. And there's been a huge, sharp increase in cases over the last three weeks. And as of yesterday, we had the lowest reported rate in months of of 254 deaths, which is obviously still really, really, you know, sad and horrible. But we would be really rocketing in the deaths now because we've been this this spike has been happening for over a month. Right. right? It's like two times the amount of time that it takes for symptom onset to lead to death. So I I think that just based off of this data alone, I think that it's going to be really, really soon that we see either herd immunity or, you know, people are talking about virus mutations. And I think that those virus mutations are actually making the virus less weaker. And if not, then we would see that in the data. And I don't think that we see that in the data. Obviously, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I am a a big math guy. So this is what I've seen from this. You think about it, it's been two weeks since kind of the the major protests. We thought that was going to cause a huge increase in deaths. We just haven't seen it. We've definitely seen cases rise, which I think will continue to rise, especially as any symptoms is going to start counting as a case, right? So I hate to view death as, as a data point, but I think it is the most conclusive data point that you can actually take a look at as to what happened. And even then, there's mixed feelings about that because if someone dies who's 90 years old, has a knee surgery, but had corona, coincidentally, they'll count that as a corona mm-hmm. death, right? And so who knows? Again, with the 4th of July, I saw personally people, you know, jumping on each other. People were so close, pretending that yeah. Corona was not existing. So, All over the country, right? And yeah. we had that with, with the protests as well, Memorial Day. I think if anything's going to make, I guess, herd immunity happen, it would be something like that. And I think that even though states might be starting to think about not reopening in their entire phase plans, other states are, like Florida's taking a huge amount of those cases, Texas, and so is California. And I just think overall, the data does look way, way better. Obviously, I'm not belittling this in the slightest. I think it's still a huge deal, and we should still be careful until this is actually over. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think this is not a second wave, right? The second wave was already happened, right? This has been around for months and months and months, and we've only started talking about it when we started testing for it, obviously. So 
there, there is no second wave. In fact, it's definitely slowing down. You can see the trend and the trend will tell you what's happening. We see the markets. I think this is almost like a great transition right now as of 10 p.m. here. NASDAQ's up 100, S&P's up 20, 22 here right now. Dow's up 210. You know, it, it's pretty phenomenal that we hear all this bad news on CNN, even on Fox and everywhere, kind of like what is exactly happening here with Corona mm-hmm. and protests. Everything's going on. It's crazy to think that stocks are going up, right? It may be Kanye West, right? Is that is, <laughs> it might, it might is be that Portnoy? Portnoy, who knows? Yeah. You know? yeah. But in reality, you know, you touched on this kind of pre-show, if you will, uh, job reports, the non-farm payroll. Talk to me a little bit about what that means, because those are the, the real economic yeah. impacts, I think, here. Yeah, I think everyone was just, I mean, we could talk about the what if here, too. I, I think that the economy is going to come back so fast, it'll make your head spin. And I think that the way that it comes back is going to be in a very, very different way than people are assuming would mean that the economy is back to perfectly normal. You know, we had these 4.8 million new non-farm payroll jobs, but you know, that was a 1.8 million surplus over the estimates. That's huge. We had 40 million unemployed. We added back t- uh, over 10, 12% of that, you know, just now in one month. And we haven't even ended the $600 a week unemployment from the government. And I think once that ends, which it ends, you know, it's ending July. Mm-hmm. So that is going to really, really cause people to go back to work, right? So if you were making 600 bucks a week, right, as we were talking about like the pizza boy thing last week, you're, you're going to go back to work now. It's honestly a lot of money for the people who are getting it. They were making a lot less at their jobs previously. Um, so I think that that's going to cause people to definitely go back into the job sector really, really, really quickly. If you just look at the natural sentiment of people outside, people are not as worried about this as they were, right. even well, in the slightest. And I, I, I want to touch on one last thing, though, before yeah, we course. move on. Yeah, because um, I think a lot of people are saying, well, what happens to all these jobs that are not going to f- have a place to come back into the economy? Well, I don't know the solution to that at all. I'm not a politician either. And I'm very actually not political. You'd be surprised. People think I'm super political on my tweets, but it's really all just data. But I think that what's happening here is that commercial real estate, which people have a lot of issues with, and they think that's going to be dropping a lot. I don't disagree. I think that if you're paying $10 million a year in rent in San Francisco for a commercial floor space, and you can work from home and save that $10 million in productivity is at least the same, if not better, which is what we're actually seeing from data, why would you rent that space? If you can have your company perform just as well autonomously, you know, with the ad, you know, this technology increase that's happening exponentially because of this virus. Um, it's just speeding up what would have happened anyway. You know, you can think about companies that are not going to be hiring people back, but there's going to be new companies that take place and it's, and it's an ever evolving door. We could probably have an entire podcast based off that as well. With this podcast, we're doing it for y'all. Part of the reason we do this is of course, to, to get some questions from the audience. So a nice little segue. Uh, we have questions from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> First one coming from at OD here. KOD, what's up, my brother? KOD asks, what is one high-risk position that you took that worked out, and what's one that tanked? What did you learn from each of those, and what drove that decision all right. Well, man, I'll just I'll talk about the good one first. So I think we talked about this a little bit last time though. I'm not sure if we did, but I think a lot of people know my story with Tesla that I put my entire account into Tesla calls, the short term, long term, and like midterm uh calls when the Model 3 came out. And that was a huge gain for me. Like I bought my car with it, it funded my accounts for like years and years, and I still have cash from those accounts today. So that was like probably the biggest thing. And, I, and I, what I learned from that is to actually like trust your gut. Like if you really feel super strongly about something, don't don't go all in, right? I did because I was a, a cocky 18 year old, but, <laughs> and it, it worked, right? But that was just a bad habit because here's my worst one that tanked. I have a, a lot of those actually. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple. One of them was Netflix 520 calls for December. Famous ones. <laughs> famous ones. Avi was in those too. I, honestly, I, so many people were in those off of like what I thought was going to happen. But that was just right before December 2018's crash. And I mean, nothing went up, right? So that tanked. I took a huge position on that because I was really thinking that Netflix was going to do super great. And the numbers were pretty good. Um, and those calls were six months out. But there's nothing you can do when the market's crashing you know, 20, 30% in a couple months. So I definitely lost my shirt on that. I think I lost like 40 grand on those. I, I did that trade because I was trying to pay off my parents' mortgage. Uh, mm. Did not work out, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, it happens, right? Like you, you take some shots and it doesn't happen and you take some shots and it happens. One thing I did learn about this, that was just like, you got to manage your risk size. It's like the biggest thing. And I was mm. also a cocky 19 year old when I did that. So 
I've learned to manage my risk size much more appropriately and, and not bet the farm in the slightest on anything. Even if I'm positive on it, like you have to manage because if you're wrong, it's going to hurt a lot more than if you're right. Totally. This dovetails nicely into at Braden QQQ. So Brandon QQ is asking, so what is y'all's exit strategy? Man, that's a tough question because I like to get in and out of things all the time, but I think what he's actually trying to talk about, it's like, what's my big exit? Like my boom, drop the mic, walk away for a month or two, maybe start shorting. I think that this market's going to go parabolic. Like, I think that there's going to be a, a time when you're going to say, why is everything so, so high? And I remember like over the years trading, I've seen times where I'm just like, man, I hate myself. I wish I could have been in this X and X and Y and Y at the low prices I saw a few months ago. But one thing I really, really learned is that most stocks, not all, but most stocks come back down and they give you another chance. Like maybe Tesla won't ever go to 400 again. That's fine. I'm already in it. Maybe shop won't ever go to 600 again. That's fine. I'm in that too. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of stocks that are not like the game changing, I mean, those are going to, those are both going to go to 5,000 in my opinion. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of other stocks that will come back down to earth, so to speak. Uh, I guess my exit strategy is right now I'm like, I've got a lot of leaps. I've been playing weekly options a bit more just because I see this as like one of the best markets of all time. I mean, you, you have to hit this ground running. It's kind of like musical chairs though, because there's going to be that euphoria that's just so strong. And you're going to say, man, I just, I want to be in everything. I want to buy everything. And that is the second you sell everything. Yep. And it's just so, it's shocking because like it goes against everything you're feeling. You're like, oh God, it's so strong. It's so incredible. Nothing's ever going to go down. But I guarantee you, when you feel that, nine out of 10 times, you are wrong. You are going to get crushed. I know because I've gotten crushed nine out of 10 times with that. Yeah. And the one that you don't get crushed on does not make up for the nine out of 10. So it's basically 10 out of 10 that you get crushed on it. No, totally. I mean, I've, you know, I'm already starting to get a little itch here. Uh, seeing, I think we have a little bit more runway here personally. Again, you know, listen to Anthony over me every time. Yeah, I, I, I agree <laughs> with you. I, I think... I think that I still see there's a lot of people who think we're going to go down. And until until the bears capitulate, until people think, man, like there's nothing that's going to bring us down, which is exactly what happened in February, right? Like the volatility was at all time lows, historic lows. Nothing was going down. Everything was just holding. The biggest swings you get in the market were 20 points. That is just like pure conviction and believing the market's going to keep going up. And like, look how fast we dropped. People were so cocky and confident and euphoric that everyone got crushed. So when that happens, that is when I'm going to be dumping out of all my leaps. And I'm actually like planning currently like an extra strategy to start scaling out of those. I think the market's going to rally really hard in the next week or two, maybe three or four weeks. I, I don't know how long it's going to last, but I do want to get out of almost everything option wise, um, the election. I'm not talking about like the day before I'm talking about like a month before, because yep. I don't mind missing a month of rally with just holding stock and hedging my stock slightly. I don't even need to really hedge my stock. I don't really care about hedging stock, but options will make your account move way, way more, especially if you have like 40% in leaps like I do. Yeah. I think that people overlook that even though, you know, the markets look super bullish, you get great premium on cover calls right now because the VIX is still elevated. So you can just make three to 5% on a lot of the things that you're holding weekly, right? So assume that if you write, into the election. Like if I dump all my leaps two weeks into the election, just because I don't know what's going to happen. And, I, and, and maybe the swine flu becomes the next big thing or the bubonic plague 2.0 or commercial real estate crashes and all mortgage-backed securities go to, go to hell. Right. We want to be careful here about telling you guys what to buy and what to not buy. You know, we yeah, can't absolutely. do that. This is never a recommendation. It's absolutely my opinions and my positions and Avi's opinions and Avi's positions. Never anything of a recommendation, no solicitation. It's really just an opinion. Yeah. And of course, too, we're doing a podcast now. It's, it's Sunday evening. By Tuesday, something completely changed. And so uh -huh. you got to watch the news every single day. Anthony's popping in and out of things. So, you know, not everything is set in stone because news Absolutely. does push the markets, right? Of course, this is actually a good segue here. So at My Jake friend. Barrett, <laughs> your buddy here, yeah. what tools, what metrics, qualities do you use when researching a possible new company? Beyond that, how are you looking at the CEO, the management, any fundamentals, numbers, What's your understanding of kind of the products and the services? How do you evaluate those new plays? Uh, and also he asks, how are you balancing this new research while also keeping up with the news? Awesome. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question, Jake. Shout out to you. You're a fantastic trader and you're going to be making a billion dollars soon. I, I would say that the biggest thing, I, I, I don't look at as much as people think for a company, right? Like I, I like to keep my noise pretty silent. 
So if I'm looking at a company and I don't see huge revenue growth, then I don't look at a company period, unless it's like a play like UAL or SPG, which is an event-driven play. But based on a, what I want to hold long-term, I look for a huge revenue growth. That's that's why I was so bullish on Tesla. Like people were so undervaluing the company. They were doing like 28 billion this year, do like 50 plus billion next year, it, minimum trading at sales. So that, that's a huge thing I look at. And then I, I need to know that those margins are going to be good. I don't care if you're making money now. Like I, I, in fact, I don't want you to be making money. Now. I want you to lose money every quarter possible until you're a decent size. Because then at your <laughs> decent size, yeah, exactly, right? You think, oh man, why would you invest in a company that's losing money? Well, okay, well, Amazon lost money. Tesla lost money. Tesla, and then yeah. If, yeah, like then Shop lost, I, don't, I think they might be still losing money. I just know that the revenue growth is crazy. Black Friday level sales every day. That's all I needed to know. And no way that Amazon could do what Shop does. No way that anyone else has the infrastructure to catch up to Shop. That's a buy, end of story. So when I look at companies, I like, I like a revenue, I look at margin, and I look at income from their operations. Like I need to know that if they're doing, whatever they're doing, whatever their business model is, it has to be profitable. Like if they're spending money on R&D, that's great. I want them to lose money. If they're spending money on developing new robots for Tesla factory, or if they're developing new ways to make the Shopify site more effective and efficient, start lending, that's fantastic. Like, you, you never become a huge game-changing company without spending way more money than you need to. Mm-hmm. Another thing here, how do I look at the CEO and management? I have to like the CEO. If I don't like the CEO, I don't want to play because if I don't think the CEO is smarter than me or as smart as me, I will never invest in the company. And I think I'm at least average intelligence, but I think that a lot of CEOs are way below it. Like Elon Musk, if he ever leaves the company, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm never touching right. Tesla again. It's crap. Like if the CEO of Shopify leaves, I'm out. I mean, those people are the ones that created these babies. And so you have to see that the CEO is super strong. Like one thing that I have like a difficult time with is Nikola because the valuation is crazy and everything, Mm -hmm. but so is Tesla's and with their pre-orders, it's fine. But I love the CEO. I think he's got balls. I think he's kicking people around who are against him and that's what you want to see. You want to see a CEO defend his company to the ground. Certain fundamental numbers he asked about, I, no. It's just a no for me, dude. I don't look at any of that. I, I, like the, the ones I just mentioned are the only things I could possibly ever look at. I don't care about the comps analysis. I just know like a spade is a spade, right? You look at market cap of what's Amazon and what's Shop and relate their growth over that time. Like, Can Shop go way, way higher? Yeah, Shop can be a $500 billion company easily. So yeah, to, that's why I'm in shop. That's the only like fundamental I look at. Understanding of the product or service. Yeah, it's got to be something that people like love and need. If I even think it's a good idea for me to use, then absolutely. I mean, like I have a Tesla. I use Shopify. Those are both things that I love. How do I balance research while keeping up news, he asked. So my news comes in all day long, right? Like I've got trade the news, which is a great thing. I learned that from my friend High Yield 6. Um, you can find him on Twitter. He's amazing. And then mm-hmm. Jake also uses it too. And I also like to follow a bunch of other people who are as smarter, smarter than me and not in braggadocious way at all. Like everyone knows kind of what they're capable to do in the markets, right? There's so many people on Twitter and in the financial markets online that know way more than I do. Like I don't Mm -hmm. have 50 years of, I don't have 20 years of experience. I barely have 10. So those people who've been doing this forever, you, you want to follow what they're talking about. You know, another great guy, Peru Saxena and Ophir Gottlieb, smarter trader, of course, you know, those people, Sammy. Sammy, of course. Those people will teach you things. Rippy mode, baby. We actually are. We are ripping quite hard. We are in it. It looks beautiful right now, the futures, by the way. But anyway, back to the questions. Um, I mean, those people, their research is phenomenal. Like Sam's research on weekly options and just the way that he values companies is exactly how I value companies now. He doesn't look at the noise and the crap. He just knows. And just by a few pieces of data, it's all you need to know. And those kind of people are, like, I have notifications all day long on those people. And I've got like 20, 30 other people that are for different reasons. Some are great chartists. Um, some are in bio and they do that really heavily. Some do other stuff really heavily. So I'm always following those kind of people for news on specific stocks. Of course, I follow the Reuters, the Squawks, all those things for news. Um, mm-hmm. But when I do research, I do research before the market. I never do it during the market because you won't have enough time most of the time to do your research properly. I don't mean just like a news article hitting, you should know how the market's going to move based off a piece of news. But I'm talking if you want to know, is this company something I want to hold for 10 years? Well, either read someone else's research that has been super deep into the company, and that's going to give you a great starting point, if not all you need to know, 
but always do your own research as well and look at the data for your own interpretations. So I, I never look at news and research at the same time. You mentioned you don't look at the fundamentals, right? And so mm. uh, MT67s, like, do you consider the Greeks? And we're, we're not talking about eating some gyros, right? Of course, but you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not so. talking about sororities. We got the, <laughs> the deltas, the thetas, the gammas, you know, it definitely reminds me of college, which uh, shout out API real quick. Um, but <laughs> getting back here to stocks, you know, do, do you consider the Greeks at all? I honestly, I know what they are definitionally, but never do I say, wow, what is the implied volatility? Wow. What is the fate of Delta Gamma Rho Vega? Blah. None of that ever because i'm telling you like a lot of those greeks have to do with each other and those greeks change every day and how mm. the heck are you going to predict what an auction's price is going to be tomorrow if tomorrow a dinosaur murdering asteroid hits the earth or which if tomorrow yeah which i mean yeah <laughs> sure we have brain-eating amoebas i have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or, or if tomorrow we have a vaccine and coronavirus is cured in six hours like you you just have no idea right this is like where you want to get to and i still have so much more to go like i know that for instance, if you talk about shop, I know that the options next week are probably like 30 something dollars for at the money, maybe 40. And it's really easy to predict what an options price is going to be. Like this is the most simple, easy way, Investopedia, YouTube, whatever, look it up and this is how you do it. Let's say stock's at 100 and the at the money is three, but at the 110, it's a dollar, right? Like the stock goes to 110, the 110 is going to be like a little bit under three if it's like closer to the end of the week or you know, if it's a next week and maybe people get excited about the news, it'll be more than three. So that's really just all you have to think about. You, you don't have to get exact with the price of premiums. You just want to get ballpark. And that's going to save you so much time, especially with how fast options move. If you're looking at exactly Delta's 0.41 and whatever it is, X and X, you're going to be wasting a lot of time, in my opinion. But there's some people who are geniuses and do well with it. I just, for myself, it's a lot of noise. Uh, and, and this is something I'm going to record and, and rewind and listen to over and over again, because I know I ask you every single week on that. Things are going well. You did mention that you're dipping your toes in a little bit of, of when that market might go down. So a great way people do this is obviously is, is hedging. So Thomas Colson here uh, at Thomas Colson is asking, what are your different hedging tactics? I know there's many, but I would appreciate which ones you have the most success. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Tomas. Got to pronounce his name properly. Oh, my bad. I love bad. this kid, too, as well as JB. Um so different hedging tactics. I, I got to say that the biggest thing that I hedge with, which honestly makes me kind of lose a decent amount of money, but on the days that it works, it covers everything times 10 is buying weekly SPX puts. I mean, you don't have to put in much, right? So I'll do like one or 2% on SPX weekly puts. Let's say I'm buying three, I'll buy one on Monday, one on Wednesday and one on Friday. And that little bit lower prices, because let's say that we drift lower all week, then I want to be you know, prepared for that continuous drop. And then I can just take off a layer each couple of days. Um, and that's one way I do SPX puts. Also during the day, and I do this every time we gap up huge recently because we've sold off instantly. So mm -hmm. we were at like 31.60. I instantly bought 31.50s and next week's 31.25s and 31 over the next three, five days because we failed that level many times. So I was just preparing. And if we kept going higher, fantastic. I would have made so much more money on the upside that I don't care if all those go to zero. You want your hedges to go to zero. Another way is by if an individual position I have goes up like crazy, um, unless it's something that I don't even care if it goes down because I know it'll come right back up like shop or Tesla, mm -hmm. I will start hedging um, using weekly puts. Like if Boeing rips 20 points, I'm going to buy puts right away um, just to hedge my long-term calls. But overall, I would say the number one, like let's say we have a coronavirus crash tomorrow, forget SPX puts, forget weekly puts, buy volatility. Like yeah. I mean, you can't trade TVIX anymore, which was a ridiculous vehicle. It went from 30 to 1,000. UVXY went from, I think, 11 to one something, 120, 130. I don't remember, but it went like over 10x. So that is the, the best way to hedge, just like outright stocks by far. If had I hedged with that instead of triple inverse short market, I would have made 10 times more of my money on my hedge. Like that is how you hedge downside volatility without a doubt, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to insert my own question. So entering the sphere here real quick. I've kind of, you know, I always said, hold it to zero, which bit me in the ass a little bit here and there. Uh, at what point do you say at maybe at 20%, you're like, fuck it, let's just bring this shit down to zero. Uh, you know, 50%, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll take it. Like, wh where are you at with percentages? Do you have a rule in terms yeah, are you, of- Are you, you know, talking when... like weekly options long -term? Yeah, for like weekly options, you know, yeah, options in general. Like at what point do you just kind of say, all right, fuck it. I lost this one. I'm going to sell out and lose 40%. Mm -hmm. And maybe at 10% left, you're like, all right, obviously we got to just 
it's, it's going to go to zero or it's going to pop back up. So I'll take that risk. Yeah. Like, do you have so, laws? Like the, what are the, what yeah, are the I, I laws I, here? Ton, well, I mean, I definitely follow a lot of like Sam smart traders laws there. It's like you ride stuff to zero, but I, I do stuff sometimes differently to that, which he also does is like you roll down, right? It's like the, if the news flow changes terribly, what I'll do is I'll just, I always just honestly let them go to zero just because if they go to zero, what, like if the, da- if the upside's looking bad, I'll buy those weekly SPX puts, which usually will be cheap before bad news will hit. I mean, I'm always hedging before the bad news hits, which is why I lose money on hedges, but then I make a lot on the upside because I can take the full upside and then protect my downside if things go wrong. But if let's say a stock I have has just been getting killed and it doesn't look like anything's good, the news flow is bad. Like I'm going to, I'm going to dump it and just buy something better. I lost a lot of money and time and not from the position because I don't really care about any one position individually, but I do care about opportunity costs. So one thing that I hate, and I know one of our friends loves is Roku. And I, I just recently bought Leon back in. <laughs> yeah, I just recently bought back into Roku, but I spent like three months holding Roku and it was a very large part of my portfolio. It was like 12 or 15%. It was like a, a good chunk and it went nowhere. And one day on the earnings pop, I was just like, you know what? I don't trust this thing. So I got out at like 150s and then for months, I mean, it went down to 52. So I, I saved 100 points there. Should have got back into 52. That was great. But I didn't. Uh, I got back in around like 109, 115. But it was something like that. You realize the opportunity cost in the time that Roku was shitting the bed nonstop. Shop went to 1,000 from 300 and TTD went to 450 from 200. So you want to, if you're wrong, just admit you're wrong to yourself. You know, no one cares if you're right or wrong besides yourself, really, right. unless you have, unless you have investors. You kind of, you know, you want to look at your portfolio for what it is. It's a portfolio. So you may have some losers, right? You take, take a look at like how VCs, when they're investing into companies, they may have one winner that totally takes away from any Absolutely. losers that they have. So they're going to have 20 bad companies that they invested in, but the one company they did invest with, will more than make up for those losses. So I think that's yeah. kind of the same way I look at yeah, like my absolutely. portfolio. Absolutely. And I, and I never put in a position size at all, even close to what I'm not okay with losing, which is just like smarter traders, big rule. I've just taken my approach to weekly options as well, just directly from him. Cause it's like, I think it's the best one yet. Just knowing that those can go to zero to marks. They really can't like mm-hmm. I've, I've woken up and I've had my, all my weeklies go to zero. And I'm just like, well, well shit. Well, at least I didn't put in the farm and I can trade another day, which is my biggest rule. Make sure you can trade another day. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. No, I, I agree. Uh, one of our favorites here, we got a question here from pal San Antonio, AKA Doug E fresh. <laughs> so he, he asks, some say the fed are creating a massive asset bubble. That's about to pop. Can you please explain how they can navigate out of this ever expanding balance sheet? And what do you think the next three to four years will look like here? Okay, so a lot of people have asked me this question. So a lot of what the Fed's holding are things that have to come to maturity, right? So they're holding treasuries, they're holding corporate bonds that don't mature for three, four, five, seven, whatever years. And I know based on what Powell said that the Fed will hold these until maturity. So if the markets continue to go up and you know everything gets better from coronavirus, airlines go back up, all that jazz, then they'll, they're going to make a ton of money on those bonds. So they're going to let those bonds mature, make a great yield over time from those because they bought them at such a discount. And then they can start taking off the rest of their balance sheet. And I think they'll just do it slowly. I don't think there's no way that they're going to be like, oh, we're selling a hundred billion every single day. There's just not, not going to happen because they know that that will destroy the market. So I think what's going to happen is the next time we have a beautiful, perfect, amazing dandelion in, in the field economy, the Fed will start tapering. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they're not going to do anything with rates for two years minimum. So that's fine. And so that kind of gives them a leeway to be able to get off of the balance sheet. But they have so much on. And I know a lot of it is bonds and a lot of it is stuff that has maturity. So they'll be able to take those off naturally through things maturing. But I don't think that there's going to be any chance that they significantly start decreasing it for at least the next two to four years. So you say um, that, right? The next two to three years, we're in the clear. Granted, you know, the Fed could change their mind. Obviously, the Fed is separate, you know, from the selection. But does that play any role for some folks that may not know as much, including myself here? <laughs> well, can they change their mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Fed can always change their mind. I mean, that's what they their, their minutes every month tell you what they're going to think and what they're going to do. But I think that they they know better now that I, I'm hoping that they know better now that if they do change their mind on this, it's going to be a problem. You cannot mm-hmm. you cannot start raising rates before the economy is back to perfect. Right. You cannot taper until the economy is back to perfect. So unless everything looks better. I mean, employment needs to go back down to threes, like 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we got to get our GDP back to perfect and higher. And we need to get our you know consumer spending way higher than it was. And once all that starts happening in whatever, if it's 2021 and you know, they said that 2020 was supposed to grow 9% and then 2021 and 2022 was supposed to grow the same or more. Mm-hmm. It should account for all that put together from where it would have been perfect. So until everything is made up, so to speak, then they're not going to start tapering. Got it. No, in my I, opinion. I'd, I'd personally agree there. I think this is going to take a few years to recover. And I, I think it'd be silly of them to raise the rates out of nowhere and, and destroy our entire economy. Yeah. So jumping in here to uh, Heath. So we got at Cohen Heath. He is asking long-term investment strategies, 401ks, are you for or against them? Withdrawal during the CARES Act, abilities to access money without penalty, invest and pay taxes over three years, or replace them without penalties. A lot of people are asking this question, so I thought this was a good one to obviously cover. Uh, mm-hmm. You're young. I'm not sure if we'll have the same opinion here on 401ks. but <laughs> Shout out to Heath. Great investor. I'm obviously the biggest fan of long-term investment strategies. Like I love weeklies. Those were my bread and butter for years, but I find myself making a lot more money with long-term strategies consistently, especially with larger sums of money that I'm managing. Um, I think that had I gone to sleep in a coma for a year from when I first set my fund in July, I would be up way more than I am right now, even after all my managing. I had a 10% stake in Tesla and sh- at 220 and shop at like 280 and then you know TTD at 170. So those are like my three biggest holdings back then. And those would have made me way more than I made um, overall. I had like Apple at 190, th- those kind of things. So I think long-term you have to really, like if you find a great entry point, I think people like to sell their winners way too early. I think it's just a natural human tendency and hold on to their losers. Don't do that. Dump your losers, add to your winners, or you're going to lose. 401ks, um, I'm for them because if you have an employer and he matches you, that's great and everything. I think that if you know how to invest, you should definitely do it yourself. Roth IRA, if you are going that route, or just your your personal trading account. If you're doing long-term, it doesn't really matter because you're paying 10 15%. Taxes are not your friend, but they are your friend. If you're making a lot of money, you shouldn't complain because you know if you have to pay taxes, a lot of them, then you are a baller. So you just enjoy the gains, especially if you do long-term stuff. So I think that anything like that is not a huge deal. Um, but withdrawing during the CARES Act, yeah, like if I had a 401k with that much money, I totally would. And then I would do a ton of other stuff with it. You know, you can always add it back without the tax penalties for, what is it, three years? Yeah. So I think that's great. I think that people should be taking advantage of that. I mean, similar, but different. This is money that I'm not touching, right? 401k, IRA, those are kind of blind where I'm just not looking at those. Those will operate on their own. Uh, and then I like to play around, of course, with my own trading accounts, uh, obviously much smaller, but definitely would suggest putting money over time, it's going to go mm-hmm. up. And so those are different strategies, right? I'm in sales, right? And I have big accounts that I go after. Those are kind of like the the big sequoia trees per se. And then of course, there's little branches, which you could think about as those weeklies that, you know, even some of those leaps are kind of longer or bigger branches, but really think about it, your overall investing strategy there. I don't disagree at all. I actually like have started building my own long-term account that I'm not touching. And it's so hard for me because I want to buy and I want to sell. And I'm a very, very active trader. But looking at my, my portfolio data over the year versus my active trading data, I'm actually just way better at picking stocks and just holding on to the right companies than I am at in, trading in and out. And I think I'm like I'm pretty good at both. But I would say that the you know buying and holding of the life-changing companies that you think will change the world is something that you should definitely you know consider doing instead of just trading in and out all the time. And if you want to have an account that's set up on the side and you don't want to look at, I'm working on getting the self-restraint to do that. And so I, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> totally. So this is another thing new that the people have been asking. What are your favorite stocks over, not just say weeklies, because those are you know lottos more or less, but over the next month or so, what are, what are the stocks you're looking at for over the next month and maybe even longer, right? Is there a few stocks that you could share that you have a pretty strong conviction along? I've been a huge fan of Mercado Libre, Mealy, M-E-L-I, the ticker. I was trading it in the 400s, but I got a really long position at 550. I bought the 900s for Jan at, nine, or at 12, and those are like uh, 200 now, and I sold them at like 100. So those that was like one of my biggest plays of the year. But look at the way that shop has been moving. Look at the way that Tesla has been moving. If you compare the consolidation from shop and Tesla over the last two weeks into their exp- like explosions. I mean, Tesla ran 200 points, 250 points, like shop ran 300 points. And I think Mealy did that run before, 
but that's because people didn't understand the value of Mercado Libre. So I think that Neely has another 200 point run in it. I don't know when, and I think it's going to be soon because if you look at the comparison of how long the other two consolidated before that big leg up, and so shop was like hanging out 700 to 730, 40 uh, for like two, three weeks. Tesla was hanging out between 860 and 900. Then it blew to 1,000. Then it was 960 to 1,000. And then now it blew to 1240, 1250. So I think that Mealy has just been hanging out between 998 and 940 for like the last two or three weeks. And so I've got 110, 120, and 130 calls for next week. I've got a triple layer on that, which means I'm pounding the table. And I think, that's, <laughs> I think that that's going to be a pretty big winner. I'm already in that. And I also have uh, stock and long-term calls on that. Um, one, one, one thing you, you mentioned with Melly, and I, I was kind of teasing this earlier, where um, with Tesla, right? Elon Musk was starting to get a little bit cocky. I saw this also same thing that happened with CrowdStrike, where they kind of jumped ahead and they were getting excited for earnings ahead of time. And you mentioned that Melly had posted earning dates ahead. You can talk to that a bit here. Yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of companies, especially in this climate, have any idea or even want to post when their earnings date is going to be. Amelia is such a methodical company, in my opinion, that they have the next two earnings dates already planned out to the calendar. I think that that just tells you, they, they want to tell you what they're doing. And I know, in my opinion, that they are like killing it. Another thing I'm really long on is Stoneco. They're a Latin American, South American, they do financial processing and business management and that kind of thing. Amelia um, does that. They're the Shopify of LATAM. And I know that the shop data has been insane and people are less quick to catch on to ADRs. So, you know, stocks from other countries in the U.S., American depository receipts for, you know, just to explain that. But I think Neely is going to have blowout quarters. Uh, They're going to have continuous blowout quarters. And I think that they are going to be one of the biggest non-U.S. companies trading on the U.S. market, besides like the Alibabas and the Chinese companies. So it's definitely something I'm going to be continuing to be long on. It's like when Amazon and Google started becoming the big US tech companies um, in the last like couple of years. They were mirroring each other for a long time. And then Google did a split. And then Google was lagging for a while. Amazon exploded in growth. But Shopify and Mealy are like very similar companies. And shops getting into payment processing with their, their lending to a lot of their vendors and people who have kind of shops in their you know, company. Uh, and Mealy is doing that as well. So I think that they have a lot of their hands in a lot of different cookie pots. And I think that they're going to continue to blow out earnings. Awesome. You also mentioned to me beforehand Redfin, which is which I actually bought a ton of recently. Dive into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. This is switching gears quite a bit here in terms of what they do as a business. But talk to us a little bit more about why you think Redfin, in, in a state of an economy where people don't have money, are people buying houses? Yeah. Well, okay. So here's the thing: a lot of people are assuming that because commercial real estate is doing really poorly, that residential real estate is doing poorly. I don't think that that's like the case, especially if more people continue to work from home. I think that residential real estate will be fine. And then you should also have to factor in like the huge population growth in the next 10 years. That's not going to stop. Like you're not going to stop. This is not, you know, we're not having a one child policy in the U S um, hopefully not ever, then, <laughs> but I think Redfin is going to be doing really well. There's the way that they do real estate is very different. Like you, you can peruse thousands of homes for sale, get detailed information on each and even schedule a home tour directly from the app. Right. It's making real estate like buying Amazon online. Like I think Zillow and Trulia, those companies, you still have to go talk to the broker. You still have to do this and that and like schedule all this stuff. I think Redfin makes that move into a more automated electronic version. I think anything that does that is a good thing to look into. It may not work out. I know a lot of people like brought up stuff about its debt and all that. Like once again, I don't care. But I, yeah, I think I mean, it's one of my bigger positions and I think that I want to continue adding to it. I heard a lot of my real estate friends starting to talk about it. So that's another thing. Like people are saying, how do I pick a company? Well, people are starting to talk about it. That's really all I really want to hear. Totally. And I was just going to jump in there. I think my, my fiance, she's a preschool teacher. She has her ear to the ground of families here in New York. A lot of families are starting to leave these cities and they're leaving these apartments. And then when it comes to residential, like you know, my family is pretty big in residential real estate as well. But more importantly, is a lot of these cities are starting to move out to the suburbs. And so there's going to be a lot more home buying that's taking place. In, in terms of, of some of these other ones you mentioned, we got three more to go. NVIDIA. Talk yeah, to me about I, NVIDIA. I, I, first of all, it's one of my favorite companies ever. I was in it super long from 60. It's like, yeah, 400 now. So that was a good buy. Um, and I remember I was in college and I did a presentation to Goldman. I still hate Goldman. 
I did a presentation at Goldman and I was like, like NVIDIA is going to go, my price target was 129 and they had that day updated their own price target to 128. Still didn't win the competition. It doesn't make any sense because I literally like predicted it before them. But regardless, Micron did super great on their earnings, you know, comparative to what it, people were thinking it was going to do. And they had a great reaction. So I'm a pretty big uh, bull on NVIDIA. Um, Micron told you that there's a demand and especially with all the data and it moved to huge tech companies and the advent of like how many tech IPOs are happening right now. The tech is just taking over. It's been taking over for a long time, but now it's exponentially taking over. Like look at the percentage of Amazon, Google, and how much those make up the top five make up the S&P, how much the top five make up the NASDAQ. It's got to be like 50% of the NASDAQ. It's got to be like at least 27, 20, maybe 30% of the S&P now, just because of how much those companies have grown. So I'm very, very bullish on NVIDIA. Another one we were talking about, AYX, one of my favorite companies. I was really long on this since the 90s. Uh, I think that the reason I'm really bullish on AYX uh, and also MDB, those two are really in the same like basket of stocks as ServiceNow and TTD and Shopify, like in terms of software as a service companies that everyone's really, really bullish on. Um, those just haven't ran yet. MDB is not at its all-time high and not 20, 30% over. AYX just broke out of its like two-year all-time high IPO base. So definitely bullish on AYX and MDB. Looking at another one, XP, they do financial services and processing in Latin America. I think that that's kind of like a newer company, but I think that if the trend follows as with you've seen with like Square and Mercado Libre, even Stone Co., I think that's going to benefit a lot. I think it's a newer pick that I think is going to do really well. Shout out to Austin Lieberman for mentioning the name to me. Um, so yeah, those are like, I guess the things that I'm going to be looking at and I'll be continuing to add those over the next month. Well, folks, I think that uh, wraps things up here for the second episode. I want to thank everyone. We would not be here without our fans, I guess we can call them, right? Um, but really appreciate all of the listeners. We get tons of feedback constantly uh, on Twitter. Tony, if you want to you know, yeah, wrap absolutely. this up here, everyone wants to hear your voice over mine. So take over. <laughs> You're a fantastic here, co-host. <laughs> no, I, please, please give any uh, feedback, questions, comments. You know, we love to hear critiques with any of that. You know, I had... Yeah, James Vernon, thank you again. Uh, he gave us the idea for the what if section. So that's a fantastic add to the podcast. I think it's interesting to add a little bit of non-market related events that are kind of market related, but just kind of interesting what could happen in the world. Um, so yeah, thanks for everyone for listening and please join us next week. We're going to have another podcast. Probably going to keep it a little shorter next time, but we had a lot of extra things to mention this week. We cannot wrap up an episode without pounding the table. See you guys next week. Have a great trading week.